If you are interested in trying to improve the outcomes for youth who age out of foster care, then this podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Lynn Tanini, founder of Aging Out Institute, an organization dedicated to sharing resources and strategies that help youth who have to age out of the system be able to transition to independence successfully. Now grab something to take notes and get ready for some great information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Aging Out Institute podcast series, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Our guest today is Brittany Kindle, the Program Director for Safe Families Plus, which is a program in the organization Safe Families for Children, located in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Brittany, to AOI's podcast. So glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me, Lynn. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Why don't we start, if you would, by telling us a little bit about yourself and your connection to foster care? Of course. Um, So I actually am a former foster youth myself. Um, My mom lost custody of my siblings and I when I was four years old. So I entered into relative foster care at the age of four, and I actually remained in relative foster care, a few different placements, um, actually until my 21st birthday. So I actually emancipated out of the foster care system um, at the age of 21. So the entire time I was in relative foster care, but um, like I said, I was in a few different placements and I've had a number of, I had a number of different experiences within the system, just with different caseworkers and um, just trying to advocate for different services that I needed or different, like, you know, medical care, things that I felt like I wasn't receiving. And also my siblings and I, we were all in different placements. My mom, she has nine children. So we were all kind of split amongst different family members. So we all had a number of different experiences, depending on um, who we went to live with and, you know, how long we stayed there and, you know, what that living arrangement was like. So that is my connection to the foster care system. And that is probably what was my biggest reason for wanting to, well, not, I I can't say that is why I wanted to work within the system, because I think that at first it was like, I knew that I was like, I want to stay as far away from child welfare as I possibly can. Right. Um, I would think I was a little scarred, but I think ultimately that is what what brought me back to it. I I was so passionate about it. Um, I received my letter of emancipation while I was in my junior year at Stanford University, and it just brought up a lot of feelings for me. And I think that's when I really started to think, like, what is it that I really want to spend the rest of my life doing? And I had a study abroad experience where I got to work at an orphanage in South Africa and, you know, just interacting with, um, you know, youth who had just come from really adverse childhood experiences. I was just like, I have to do something that really matters to me, but also I have to make a difference. Like I, I kept saying, you could tell there are a lot of people who work within the system who haven't really experienced it. And I think that there have to be people who have gone through it who can kind of say, make an informed decision and say, well, maybe that's not the best thing for those youth. And so I was just like, well, I can't keep saying that's what I, they need and then not do it myself. So ultimately that's what um, took me to um, want to pursue a master's in social work at the University of Chicago. I focused on clinical social work, pursued my uh, LPSW. Um, So now I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I am the program director of Safe Families Plus, which is, uh, we'll get into after this, but that is basically my involvement in child welfare. So I think that answers it. Yeah, I think so. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. 
Quick question, for those who may not know the term, uh, could you explain relative foster care? Yes, so there are a number of different placements that youth can have once they become involved in the child welfare system. So once parents no longer have custody of the child, um, so they can go and live with a non-relative uh, family, which means they're living with someone who they don't have a biological connection to. I was fortunate enough to live to have family members who um, were able to accept me and some of my siblings into their home. So my first placement were, were, was with my aunt and uncle. And I went through that as well. I lived with my grandmother for a short while and then also with a family I had not met that I could remember. I was told I met them when I was very, very little, but they were extended family of my uncles. So I, I know the phrase as kinship care. So I just wanted to let folks know who's listening that there's actually another term for that. Yes, yes. We, I think it kind of depends on the state. Yep, yep. And the other thing I just wanted to point out, um, that our series is, is young here, and we might have people listening who don't know all the details about foster care, but there are states in which you can emancipate at 18, or you do emancipate, and then there are those where you emancipate at 21. So you said you emancipated at 21, correct? Yes, Illinois is fortunately is one of the states that has extended foster care, which means you emancipate at 21 versus at 18. I can't imagine um, receiving that letter right after I graduated from high school. How about if we now go into more explanation of the organization that you work with, Safe Families Plus, would love to hear more about what your program does and how it specifically helps young people get ready for and prepare for independence. Yes. So Safe Families Plus actually started as a pilot program. So we are a program that works through uh, 5013C, which is called Safe Families for Children, which is a national organization. Um, and the mission of Safe Families for Children is to prevent youth from actually going into the child welfare system. So it's basically a program that works on a volunteer basis. So they Safe Families for Children recruits volunteers that are willing to host families or children, whichever um, is needed, basically to prevent uh, youth from coming into the system. So let's say a mom is just having a rough time or she's having just a, a crisis, right? So she has, uh, she's lost her job and she has maybe like a two-week period before she starts her new one and there's like, there's been like a break in like her income or her housing situation. She can basically call Safe, safe Families for Children and say, hey, I don't have anywhere for me and my, my, my kids to live right now, or I don't have anywhere for my kids to live right now or for them to get back and forth to school. Do you have a volunteer who can have my kids come stay with them for two weeks until I start this new job and we can, you know, commute, uh, you know, just two miles for them to get to their new school? Is there a volunteer who will be willing to host them? So Safe Families for Children will go into their database, find a volunteer and say, yep, we found someone. They're willing to host your, your kid or you and your kid. Can drop them off and you know it, it's arranged that way and these volunteers have already been screened they've had background checks and fingerprints completed so it's a very safe and secure system they, they're not paid to do it at all um they meet the families and then it goes from there so that's a families for children so the, their whole purpose is to prevent kids because you know and in, in another situation let's say that kid misses two weeks of school um it comes to the uh, the attention of a social worker dcfs may get involved or the local child welfare agency i'm not sure what it's called here is the department of children and family services or cps or whoever they may get in involved that family is now exposed to or at risk of that 
kid being removed from the home. So we're trying to prevent that and, you know, trying to help families who just may be going through a short period of crisis. That's the whole idea of Safe Families for Children. And I think if we had more programs like that, we would have less kids who are actually in the system because we know that we have a shortage of, of foster parents, foster homes. So that is how Safe Families, that is how, why Safe Families for Children exist. So in 2017, our state child welfare agency, DCFS, they came to Safe Families for Children. They said, hey, we have this money. We want to give this money to Safe Families for Children to start a pilot program. But we specifically want to target transition age youth who are uh, basically a part of that, like, uh, that 17, they said they, they came to us with the age of 17 through 20 age range. Um, and they, because they said this, this, they're really at risk of aging out of the system without having like a housing plan or an employment plan or something set up so that they can do well. When they presented that idea, we said, well, 17 seems kind of late for us to kind of be involved. Like, why don't we start a little bit earlier? So we sit, brought the age down to 14 and working in partnership with them. Um, and this pilot program was to start a mentoring program. So we thought if we could match one youth with one volunteer adult who they would work with on a one-to-one basis, just meeting twice a month or more than that if they could, but that was the minimum, they could develop a relationship with this person who could kind of help steer them through the process of getting ready to prepare for that transition to adulthood. And I know 14 seems kind of early, but when you think about all the different steps that go into preparing for adulthood, it's like... Well, you need to think about a resume. You know, you need to think about uh, learning how to drive. You need to think about how do I even build a relationship with someone or learn how to trust someone when the very people that I was supposed to trust very early on are some of the people who failed me in, in life, right? So that mentoring relationship, we wanted to start early so that we can build it up over time. And then by the time that youth gets ready, um, you know, and they're 20, 20 years old and they're starting to think about their transition plan, they're like, well, I can also call my mentor because even though I'm going to lose all of these supports, you know, when I age out of the system, I'm going to lose my caseworker, I'm going to lose my GAL, you know, I'm going to lose everybody that I've known that has been a part of my team. I'll still have at least this one person, this mentor that is going to still be connected to me. So that was the idea of Safe Families Plus. So we developed the, the the program plan. We developed the outcomes of like, what would this look like? The idea for us is that if we focused on the relationship and we focused on the adult being like an additional social support and connect, working in connection or in partnership with everyone else that's already in that youth's corner, right? We're working with the residential staff. We're working with the foster parent. We're working with the school. You know, everybody else, we're not in competition with each other. And then we match that mentor and that youth with a coach. So that's somebody from my team who's there to kind of step in if the youth isn't answering their phone or if they're missing outings with their mentor. They're there just to find out what's going on. Is the relationship getting strained? Has the youth just not been able to pay their phone bill? You know, like what is the issue that's going on? So they're never on their own in that relationship. The coach is there the entire every step of the way, able to to work with them and manage expectations on both ends. Because I think some of the adults have their ideas like, oh, I was a mentor through Big Brothers Big Sisters. I never had these issues working with a young person before. And it's like, well, have you ever worked with a youth that's experienced a lot of trauma or that's, you know, never lived with their biological parent? You know, so just trying to train mentors and train adults is very different from only working with youth. So I think for us, it's a it's a partnership with youth workers um, and residential staff and everyone, but also working with mentors and volunteers and kind of 
getting them to stay the course and kind of expecting you to test boundaries a little bit and see if their mentors are still going to continue on even after they kind of resist a little bit or if they show up to their group home and they refuse to come downstairs, are they going to come back for that next meeting? So I think that's the the idea of Safe Families Plus, and I think that's how we kind of help youth prepare for independence. But our our main thing is really allowing youth to, they guide that relationship. They guide what their idea of what uh, adulthood looks like or what success looks like for them. If they are like, I know when I emancipate at 21, I want to be um, living in my own apartment. Okay, let's figure out how we get there. If they say, I know I want to have my college degree. Okay, let's figure out how we get there. They're really letting us know. They're setting the goals from that very first introductory meeting and letting us know what it is that adulthood or that transition looks like for them. So is there a particular curriculum that the mentor follows, especially if you're, say, starting with a 14-year-old, you know, as that young person is getting older, say, okay, when they're 14, we want them to to learn these skills when they're 15, we want them to learn these skills. Is there any kind of curriculum like that? Or is it really just developed from based on the goals that the young person has and each youth will have a very unique curriculum, if you will? And that is exactly what it is. Each youth will have a very different, unique curriculum. However, there are certain things. So we do as a staff, we do plan like group events or group outings or group trainings for mentors and mentees to come to. So we've had like cooking workshops or we've had rock climbing events and we've had resume workshops where and we've had career fairs. Like So we've had different events that we've invited youth and their mentors to come to that kind of go over these like overarching things that we think all youth would benefit from, but we we don't have a set curriculum like this is what every youth needs to know at this age. Because I will be honest, most of our youth, I would say over 75% of our youth, we have a referral form that they're completing with their caseworker. A lot of them are coming in with some mental health issues. Some of them have, a majority of them have IEPs. Some of them have uh, intellectual disabilities. So there are a number of different issues that will prevent this from being a one-size-fit-all kind of curriculum that uh, serves all the youth that we have in our program. We have some who are teenage parents, so they might need parenting courses. So we do have things in place that we purposely want this to be an individualized program, and that's why our mentoring is just one-to-one, because what one youth needs looks very differently from what another youth needs. Wow, that's great. Uh, Another question that came to my mind here is how do you match the youth with the mentors? Is it a random type of thing? Is it based on location? How do you make sure that you're, you're connecting a young person with an adult with whom they would feel comfortable building a strong relationship? Because sometimes that's a challenge is creating a, a space and uh, presenting yourself in a way that that young person is going to trust you. That is probably like our biggest challenge is having the right mentor for every youth. Our biggest thing is based on DCFS guidelines for us, they do want us to have same gender matches unless we have youth who identify as non-binary or transgender or we have some youth who are LGBTQ and preferred having you know a, a mentor that was not of the same gender as them. So we do honor those wishes with the approval of DCFS. So most of our matches are same gender matches. Beyond gender, because Chicago is a huge city, we do try and, and actually we're not even just based in Chicago, we're based, we're a county-based program, so we're based in Cook County, which, which includes Chicago, but it also includes a lot of uh, surrounding suburbs. We do match youth based on location. 
So we will not match a youth with a mentor who lives like over 10 miles from there, who lives or works over 10 miles from them. Some of mentors are like, oh, that youth live pretty far from me, but they work, you know, really close to me or they go, I go to school really close to where they live. So that works because I can always, you know, meet up with them after work or something like that. But we do try and make it convenient for both the youth and the mentor to get to each other. Um, so location is probably the biggest thing. I think after that, we will let the decision fall on the young person. So if we see like we have a young person who's interested in nursing and we, we can do like a, a, a match with like career paths, we'll do that. If we have someone who is, let's see, I think career path is a big one that we try to match with. And then we also have mentors and mentees complete like a, like a profile almost. So we will share that information with each other. So if we have, let's say we have a mentor who has completed a profile with a picture, they have, um, we have how many children they have, we have um, what uh, neighborhood they live in, what some of their hobbies are, what they do as a career, we'll have that all on the profile sheet. So we might send that profile sheet, two or three mentors that are in the same area to a young person's caseworker and say, hey, can you share this with Crystal and ask her which of these mentors based on these profiles she'd be most interested in working with and let and get back to us and then we can set up a meeting for them to meet. Um, and so that we really give the youth as much autonomy as we can and let them make the decision if we have like a multitude of mentors who work um, geographically. Well, how many youth do you actually work with right now? Has it grown quickly um, over the years? And what does that look like for the future? Yeah, so right now our contracted amount is for 50 youth. So that's how much we can fit in our program. We right currently have 39 youth who are matched with a mentor because when a youth turns 21, they're no longer active in the program. So we have alumni. So we currently have nine alumni who have turned 21 since working with the program since 2017. So that's something we're really proud of. Of our nine alumni, six of them are still connected with their mentor. There are three that we just cannot get in contact with or their mentors cannot get in contact with, which happens because we have youth who have moved out of the state. And, you know, it's just one of the biggest things, one of the biggest challenges we face is not youth but not having reliable cell phones. And like their, their numbers change or we have an email address and then they, they don't respond to emails. So we even resorted to like looking for them on social media and, you know, we've been successful sometimes, but not always. So that is probably our biggest thing is like when we lose contact with the youth or when a mentor loses contact and, you know, when once they turn 21, we can't go to a caseworker because their information is no longer, no longer it belongs to the state. So um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face with the program is like trying to keep them connected. That is like a hard thing for us. But yeah, we are looking to grow the program this next year. We want to serve 75 youth. And so we're asking the state to increase our budget a little bit more. So we're waiting to hear back from that. I just submitted my budget for FY21. So we'll know more in a few months. Well, do you accept donations? Is there anything that listeners might be able to do to help? I want to give you a chance to share that if you if you have avenues like that. Yes, that's awesome. Um, we do accept donations. Um, you can always make a donation on our website, which is safefamiliesplus.org. You can also go to safefamiliesforchildren.org and you can click on programs and Safe Families Plus is listed there and you can make a donation to us there. But yeah, you can reach us on our website, um, which they can also find through the AOI website. And yes, you can make donations for us to grow the program um, and we do also apply for outside grants and so far we've received a couple of outside grants and those we have used to 
we allow for it. We call them mentor enrichment funds. So we allow for mentors and mentees to complete an application together. And on that application, they can say, so if that's, we don't want money to be an issue that keeps mentors from working with a young person. Um, so we have really tried to target in, in our recruitment efforts. I think our biggest, biggest challenge that we face is recruiting male mentors and also recruiting mentors of color. Um, or not even just of color, recruiting mentors of any um, minority background, I would say. So LGBT mentors or mentors who've been involved with the child welfare system themselves. We, we do have a couple, but that's something that we, we really want our mentors to kind of be more representative of the youth we serve. That's a goal that we have for this fiscal year. And so I think uh, in doing that, I, I did bring to my team that I think sometimes what prevents people from doing it is thinking about, man, do I really have the finances to support a young person and take them out twice a month? That seems like a big barrier. So to prevent that, like we applied for some grants and we were awarded a $10,000 grant recently, which we've now put into this pot, which is for mentor enrichment funds. So mentors and mentees can apply for this money and they say like, hey, we really want to do this cooking class or do this sewing class together. We can't give them money directly, but if it's something that we can go online, you know, as a staff and pay for directly, if they turn in the application, they go sign off for it, they say how that event or that class or something is going to enhance their relationship, that is something that we will do. So we're really happy about that. And so that is something that donations have been used for in the past, but in the future, we are looking for a larger donation or for the state to increase our funding for us to serve more youth. But that also brings me to my next question is the youth that you do serve, do they have to be coming out of the system there in the county you serve? Yes, they have to. At the time when we receive their referral form, they have to currently be living in a like in, in some type of child welfare placement that's in the county that we're in. OK, does that include the relative foster care? Yes. Yes. Okay. So they can be living in any type of child welfare placement. It could be relative care, non-relative, uh, non-relative foster care. It could be a group home or residential placement. They could be living in a transitional living placement or an independent, like a SILP or something like that, ILO. We serve any type of youth in any type of setting, but they do have to live in Cook County. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, some of the basics about your program. I know there's so much more we could talk about, but I thought with the remainder of the time that we have today that we could shift our discussion a little bit and think about the, the different strategies. I mean, you've talked about, you know, like, for example, having a mentor, one person who can be that support person for a young person. That's an example of a strategy that would be effective in helping foster youth get ready for adulthood and transitioning into adulthood. I know that I've seen research that that relationship is really key. It's more important than training to get ready to interview for a job or training for, you know, study skills for how to be successful in educational settings. It's really that one person is so critical for the success of young people. So I know that's that's one thing that you really focus on, but, you know, we can talk about that some more or other strategies that either you do in your program or that you know about that are effective in helping young people. Absolutely. Um, and feel free to, to chime in. I, I think I, I'm able to pull them out as I you know, reflect back on my own experience or the people that I've talked to. Um, I've also done a lot of work while I was in grad school, just working with um, Dr. Mark Courtney, who um, has done a lot of research on the child welfare system in California. So he's looked at youth who are uh, aging out um, with the Cal Youth Study. Um, so I worked on that while I was at SSA in grad school. I think about these strategies all the time because I'm almost always thinking, how can we be better? Um, but I think one thing that comes to mind is 
is early planning. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. I think that's why I stress so much to DCFS. Like, why are we waiting until 17? That That's almost too late. Because you think about a kid who would live at home with their parent, they, they don't just start having these conversations about what is it going to look like when I turn 21? Or what is it going to look like when I'm not living at home? And honestly, if we're being honest, most kids nowadays, they're saying like the average age for kids to not live at home with their parents is like 25 or 26 now. It's not 21. So the idea that a young person, especially a foster youth who hasn't lived with a parent, would be ready to transition into adulthood at 21 is absurd, especially without the correct support. Um, so I think the earlier we start planning, the better we can do by our youth. So I think that's why I advocated for us to start this program working with youth um, before that 17th birthday. So starting with um, at 14, like it's not, it's never too soon to start planning and hearing what the young person's goals are. Of course, they're going to change, you know, but getting them thinking about it or journaling about it or drawing it or, you know, just thinking about what all, what are the possibilities for me? I think that is crucial. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I always talk to people about is a lot of these programs that are out there that are run by the welfare agencies, they wait until the young person is, say, 17 or 18. Now, it depends on the state now and if they, there's an extended uh, foster care system and, and programming that's a little different. But for those that end at 18, you're pulling kids into a full, like a one day classroom experience where you're talking about, you know, here's how you uh, create a budget and, you know, they, they're running, here's how you interview for a job. And you, you go all through this in one day when they're almost 18 years old. That's not how we learned our life skills. We learned them over time and just absorb them as we were doing laundry, as we were helping cook dinner, you know, with our parents or, or whoever. So that's one of the things that I, that I absolutely point out to people is there is so much of an opportunity for some kind of programming to be more formalized in the foster care system so that they do start focusing on the youth when they're younger. Absolutely. We're giving everybody a crash course and that just doesn't work. I think another strategy is letting people practice autonomy um, and letting them determine their own course, right? We, especially with young people, we want to tell them this is how you should feel. This is how you get to respond. This is how you, this is what success looks like. I think the more we let them tell us what it is that's important to them or what it is that they want to do, the less they'll feel like they have to fight us or, you know, be resistant to what it is that we're presenting to them. Let them tell us what it is that they want to do. All we should have to do is like help them navigate the how and find them the resources to to do that, you know, like they're saying, you know, I really don't think college is for me. You know, I don't think we should be pushing college down every young person's throat. You know, maybe we, maybe they really, really want to go to the military and that's okay. How can we get them in touch with in front of a recruiter and, you know, give them all the information that they need to make an informed decision? I think that is something that could really go a long way as we try and work together with young people and help them get ready for adulthood because they're shaping their own lives. The more we try to shape them for them, the more they're going to push back. Right, exactly. And, you know, when you mentioned practicing autonomy, I know I've heard of different states, different programs where they don't allow the young people to get a job or they don't allow the foster youth in their system to drive a car. And, you know, these things that it, when you're not in the foster care system, you, you kind of take for granted 
that when you're in high school, you might get a part-time job somewhere. You, you learn how to drive and you can start driving a car. Now, not everybody does. I didn't drive until after college, but a lot of young people do have that opportunity. So I think that's another area where there's some improvement opportunity is for foster care systems throughout the country and, and other countries too. You know, we, we typically talk about the United States, but the same challenges for foster youth here in the United States are seen in so many other countries. But yeah, just to, to be able to start practicing these skills like getting a job and interviewing for a job. You could, even if it's just a part-time job at a grocery store, you know, let's, let's help them go through that experience when they're young so that when they do leave foster care, they've been through it. They've had some experience doing it. Yes, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I think another strategy that I think my program, we try to do really well, but I think all youth workers could could all get better at is, is not feeling like we're in competition with, with one another. Like we all have to realize that we're a part of this young person's network, right? And we should all be trying to increase this person, this young person's network, right? So we think about if this young person is sitting, this, this youth in care is sitting at a table, who are all the different players who are also included at this table who need to be a part of the conversations, right? So we have a person that's going to talk about, you know, the employment plan, the person that's going to talk about the housing plan, the person that's going to talk about the, the health insurance or the, the health care, all these different players, you know, somebody who's talking about the relationship building and how you stay in touch with your siblings, because that's important. Somebody who's talking about the mental health and how you worry about behavioral health services, right? All these different players, we're all working together for this one young person. Like it doesn't have to be, the load shouldn't just be carried by one person, right? I think that's why we have so much burnout and so much turnover within the field, because everybody's like, I can't do it all. This caseworker's like, I'm overloaded with this case because I have to figure out how to do this, 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 and this for this one youth. So that's why my team, like, they're, the caseworkers we work with, they're surprised because they're like, oh, I've heard such great things, or I got a call from the mentor about how the, the, the youth, how they had this great outing with the youth. And it's like, I didn't even know that the, the mentor knew who I was. And I was like, yeah, I tried to, that's why I invited you to come to the introductory meeting with, with the mentor and the mentee because, you know, they want to be a part of this team, right? They're not competing with you for this young person's time. Like, we all want to work together so that you know that you're not in this alone. So if there's something that you're struggling with, maybe the mentor can come in and step in and have this conversation with them about why they shouldn't be missing curfew so that you're not feeling like overloaded, right? The collaboration is so important and so key. And it's a, like a really effective strategy that can really not only just tackle youth getting ready for adulthood because they figure they realize like, oh, I can have different people in my life who are helping me in different areas of my life. But as workers, we can feel some of that, less of that pressure, and we can prevent some of that burnout and that turnover that is keeping us from staying in the field much longer and being able to really do a lot of good work because we're, workers are leaving after two and three years. I'm a big proponent of the, the group, I call it group mentoring, but the, the team approach to help young people in foster care. I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard of the open table model. Yes, that's, is that the program that's in Ohio? They're national, but I believe they are based in Ohio. And it's a church-affiliated program. And generally what, what happens is a church will adopt the open table model and they have people from all these different perspectives, like you were mentioning, uh, maybe somebody who is in the career that the young person wants to go into, a psychologist, 
somebody who's from the medical field, you know, trying to, to cover all of the issues that this young person needs to face and the skills they need to build. And they meet on a regular basis as a large team, but then they also work with the young people individually to help coach the young person, to help them through their challenges and so forth. So it's the same idea and that's growing really fast, but the concept of it doesn't have to be related to a church or affiliated with a church. Any organization can pull together a team for a young person. And I absolutely believe that's the way to go. Yes, that is exactly what I was referring to when I was talking about this table. I've been trying to schedule a call with them so that I can see, figure out like how can we create this, even though like we have a shortage of mentors, right? We can't even get one mentor for each youth. But how can we like create this field where you know that like I have different people that I can go to for different things who are all working for my good? Absolutely. And the other advantage of that approach, and I think of this when I think of big brothers, big sisters. Mm -hmm. What happens if you have, let's say you're 14 years old and you get a big brother mm -hmm. and you've been hanging out and spending time with this big brother for a couple of years and then that big brother gets married or gets a job and moves away. Mm -hmm. They've had that one relationship and now it's been severed. Yeah. If you have a team working with a young person, if somebody has to leave and it's still always, you know, can be difficult when that happens. At least you have everybody else still there on the team to continue with the uh, the work and the support. And so there's, there's that advantage to that approach as well. Yeah, that's powerful. Definitely. Any other strategies that, that you've thought of? I don't want to cut you off at all before you move on. No, no. I think a lot of the other ones I have, they kind of fall under those three like overarching ones. Okay. Well, the last question I have is, and we've touched on this as we've been going through, but what do you think can be done better to improve the youth outcomes, the, the youth that have to age out? Because the outcomes are not good, right? The, the statistics are not good for these young people. Like only about 54% earn a high school diploma, 2% earn a bachelor's degree, 51% are unemployed after leaving foster care, 30% have no health insurance, and then 25% become homeless. Those are a few statistics I wanted to put out there. But what do you think the system can do to help these outcomes improve? I think the, the main thing that I'm going to always be an advocate for, I don't think there should be any state or any country where youth are aging out or emancipating at the age of 18. I think it's absurd. I think it's impossible for a young person to be ready for emancipation or adulthood at 18. I wasn't ready to do anything at 18. <laughs> And, and, and the fact that, you know, it's called extended foster care, right? Like, it's, that's not extended. Extended foster care would be to 25. So, yeah, the fact that the research is there that's showing what the average age is, that, you know, the youth are actually, like, moving out of their parents' home, I think that needs to be absolutely taken into account when we think about what age are we really expecting youth to be able to, you know, because you're thinking about, like, oh, you know, they're experiencing homelessness, they don't have health insurance. You know, all those things require a good job with benefits that requires me to know how to navigate a system or be able to make enough money to be able to pay rent and, you know, and understand credit and budgeting and all those things. I just, that would require high schools to be teaching those things. And we know that that's not happening. So I think every state, the minimum age of emancipation should be 21. And something else I want to ask you about, my understanding of extended foster care is that when you turn 18, you have the option of staying in foster care until you're 21. It's not that you have to stay in. But so many young people, when they reach 18, they've just had it up to here with the foster care system, with foster parents being told what to do. And they 
take off, even if they have the extended foster care option. So how do you think we can improve to ensure that more young people stay in? Well, I think that's also a part of the misinformation, too. So Illinois is a state, I, I don't think Illinois has extended foster care. I'm thinking of, because I've worked on the California, the Cal Youth Project. So I'm thinking of California, they have the extended foster care. So in order to even get extended foster care, you have to meet certain parameters. So you have to either be employed or in school at the age of 18 in order to remain in extended foster care. Otherwise, you're you're out. So you probably can imagine how I feel about that. Yeah, so uh, Illinois is actually, I don't, I think we, we automatically remain in foster care until the age of 21. Uh, my experience was a little different because I was at 18, I was already in undergrad. So um, I was kind of, I wasn't emancipated, but I also wasn't having regular visits with caseworkers or siblings because I was 2,000 miles away from home in school. So my experience was a little different. So I'm sorry if I'm forgetting some of the details. I'm also getting a little older. <laughs> but, you know, I think that it's not extended foster care. I, so I think that also the information that we get, and I think that this is just the solution, not just for the care being going until 21, but so many young people don't have all the information information that they need to make an informed decision. Like, I don't think a lot of young people know what it really means to be emancipated. You know, like all they hear is that like, oh, you don't have to have it. And some, I feel like some caseworkers probably explain it in this way because they're like, that's one less youth on my already two full caseload. But they're like, oh, you don't have to have any more visits with me. You know, you don't have to have these uh, family court hearings. You don't have to, it, they present it as if it's like, you're free. You know, you're free from the system that has been, you know, holding you back or whatever it is. However, it's being described or presented. You tell me that I don't have to be involved in this system anymore. Absolutely, I want out. Right, exactly. I also think that just like I presented um, earlier, but I think just in terms of like those conversations happening sooner rather than later, I think that that is key just as a whole. There needs to be more focus on just thinking about how do we prepare early on for that, whatever that age is of them aging out. Like we can't expect their outcomes to be good if we haven't prepared them for what happens once they do age out. I, we we haven't we haven't done the work for for the outcomes to be good. And then I also you know we think about like you know less than three percent of foster youth having a, a bachelor's degree. I can only speak from my experience. Not only was there no one who told me that I had a caseworker when I told one of my caseworker at the time when I was a senior in high school, I told her that Stanford, I wanted to go to Stanford for undergrad. Um, she told me, you know, well, I don't know why you would do that when you won't be able to afford that. That's what she said. So I think I also got a full ride to Stanford, so I didn't pay a penny for undergrad, but she said, you won't be able to afford it. And I said, well, there's financial aid, there's scholarships, you know, I'm applying for Gates and I'm applying for Questbridge, all these full ride scholarships, right? She didn't have all the information, but here she is shooting down this idea that I have. So I'm like, okay, am I making a mistake by thinking that this is within my reach? But then she goes, well... You also, you, you know, you should look at schools within the state because then, you know, if you go to UIC, for example, University of Illinois, Chicago, you know, the state will pay, you know, for your tuition. Um, but then, and then you'll just be responsible for room and board, which you can pay with loans. And I'm like, huh, maybe I should apply to UIC. And so, like, I'm just getting all this different information, which isn't the best information. So I think that having young caseworkers who are constantly turn, like, with, you know, with lots of turnover and, you know, they're, I don't know what the training is looking like, um, but there's too much false information being fed to young people where they 
they're not realizing that there are so many good things that could come from, you know, just applying to certain opportunities and internships and um, job training programs like Year Up and things like that. There are so many different opportunities that are available, but there's just not enough people who are sharing about like the education training voucher and the youth and scholarship program, like things like that that are available for young people. I can probably count on my hands how many of youth in my program that I've had to tell about these things because they've never had a caseworker tell them. Right. I've heard the same thing that so many youth leave foster care and nobody's shared with them the different programs, the different housing vouchers and whatever might be out there. So many things like that. So if there was just some way that youth just had like a website or something with just a wealth of information, a folder or something, something that didn't depend on someone else giving them this information, right? There needs to be a way for them to have all the information that they need to make informed decisions and not miss out on opportunities. And I think like when we think about outcomes, I think one of the biggest things I think is there has to be some type of bridge program. So the same way the education system has thought of programs like TRIO and um, like job training programs and employment training programs, like things like that, that have helped bridge the gap for youth who are just starting a little bit further back or who don't have exactly, who haven't had just the opportunities or the resources to start where everyone else is starting. The foster care system needs to think of things like that that would allow youth to have those same opportunities, but would just fill in that gap, right? That is going to make up for the things that they've missed out on and at no reason of, you know, for no reason of their own. But there has to be some type of bridge program or something like that that'll fill in those gaps for all the different areas of their lives where the system has just fallen short. That's a great idea. One of the things I want to point out is um, Aging Out Institute on our website, we actually do have a database. And the way that the database is designed, it is a collection of resources and research um, specific to helping young people age out of foster care. So if you were to go into the database form and you would say, hey, I'm looking for housing information in Illinois, gather information about programs that assist with housing specifically for young people aging out of foster care. And the results would be pulled up then for the young person. So that's one of the things that I also am trying to get out through this podcast is to let people know that this resource does exist. It's not exhaustive. I keep adding more and more programs to it on a regular basis. Um, So there's room for growth, of course, but there are a lot of programs in there. So that's a place that young people could go to start looking for, uh, for programs that can help. But there really does need to be a place like that, that young people can find on their own. You know, if nobody's telling them, at least the the person can take a couple of minutes and say, here, (laughs) you know, look up this website, and then they can do the research on their own. Exactly, Lynn, because I'm thinking how many youth or not, forget youth, how many um, child welfare workers even know about the Aging Out Institute to be able to find your site? Yep, exactly. Trying, Trying to get the word out there. But for those who might be interested, it's um, Aging Out Institute. It's just agingoutinstitute.org, and you would do forward slash AOI dash database, and that would take you to the database um, page where you would start your search. Um, the other thing that I want to share with everybody is AOI has ha- actually written up a paper on the Safe Families Plus program because you were an award winner last year, and if folks are interested in downloading that and reading through that, it's again agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI dash downloads, and you'll be able to find the paper there um, and pull up a PDF that you can then load to your laptop. So I just want to get that out there. <laughs> Thank you. 
You're very welcome. Well, uh, I just want to ask if you have anything else to share. You know, we're coming up here on an hour and I don't want to go past 60 minutes. So um, I think we'll probably wrap up. But do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? Just thank you so much for um, allowing, um, one, for allow, allowing Safe Families Plus this, uh, the opportunities for this award. I think what you guys are doing is amazing. I think I'm always thinking about strategies and I know it can be so easy to get caught into everything that's going wrong. Um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to really think about how can we do better? How can we think of strategies? How can we, you know, just think onward and upward? So I really appreciate you giving me this platform and I really appreciate the out institute for the work that you guys are doing oh well, thank you and you are very welcome and i'll tell you what one of the things that we're trying to achieve um aging out institute is to break down the the silos we have so many great programs out there like yours with a lot of great ideas and strategies that are working Unfortunately, there is a lack of communication and sharing across states, you know, throughout this, the community, if you will, of people who work with foster youth. And so we're, I'm really trying to break that down and help share um, programs, share information. Uh, so that said, I will ask if anybody would like to get in touch with you, Brittany, um, to talk with you about your program, would you be willing to share uh, how they can do that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the best way, if it's someone who is looking to start a similar program, a mentoring program, um, I think the best way would be to contact me directly via email. Um, I can be reached at B, uh, Kendall, K-I-N-D-L-E, at safefamilies.net. Um, but you can also follow Safe Families. Um, we are active on all social media. Um, so Safe Families Plus on Facebook and Instagram and also Twitter. But if you want to just send a message to us, I think via email and also via Facebook, um, we check our, uh, our messages every single day. Brittany, I think I'll go ahead and, and thank you so much for participating and being our guest today. And I'm very excited to, uh, to get this podcast out there so the listeners can hear all the wonderful things that you had to, uh, to tell them. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode's show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast-level patron on Patreon. For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash aging out institute. Thank you so much for considering it, and thank you for listening. Until next time.